Welcome to Ixnay, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the shallow end of the electorate as a means to gaming the 2020 election to our advantage. Turn on, tune in, vote out. Hey, all right now. Today we have a cool interview with Dave Karp about the nuts and bolts of political campaigns, along with a couple of other dazzling segments, but I'd like to start with a quote from Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. People cannot be free unless they're willing to sacrifice some of their interests to guarantee the freedom of others. Nice, am I right? So wear a mask and keep planning your election party. Don't make me come over there. Previously on Ixnay, I mentioned that Bratzo would be reading the Bolton book aloud for Father's Day. I got no sharp takeaway because I fell asleep during the first chapter, but this I can say with some enthusiasm. I hope that the room where it happened sells like hotcakes while the government also denies Bolton any royalties. That way you can buy a copy with a clear conscience and send it to your conservative relatives with your heart safely in the good place. Enough with the hogwash, let's get to it. Okay, what's news? All the latest national polls show that Biden is destroying Trump, while The Economist has just launched an amazing voter forecast modeler that gets into incredibly specific detail. My suggestion, look at this data like a scene from Evil Dead, where Ash Williams is wielding his chainsaw arm like a samurai against demons. It's fun to look at, but hardly something to bet the farm on. Because of the Electoral College, neither national polls nor even popular vote totals are going to amount to a hill of beans. Remember, swing states hold our fate. Keep pushing your people, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio. It's your party on November 3rd, so why not invest a little time in making sure it's a winner? To that point, I'm recommending VoteForward.org today as a specific way to take action in solidarity. I like it because it weaves self-care into political action. They provide pre-written, pinpointed letters of encouragement and direct you exactly when, where, and to whom you'll be sending the letters. It's easy and free. Plus, it's surprisingly satisfying to mail people about important stuff that's been written by an assistant. Just go to VoteForward.org download and print the letters, then by hand personalize and address the necessary stamped envelopes. You have to pony up for the stamps and envelopes, but it's actually kind of soothing to write letters of encouragement to strangers all over America. Plus, you'll be supporting the U.S. Postal Service, whose help is going to be critical to the vote-by-mail effort this year. And no matter how Americans feel about big government, even libertarians enjoy getting handwritten letters in the mail. Dave Karp is an associate professor at George Washington University, and he knows more than the average bear about how modern political campaigns use the internet to work us and how we can work them in return. Plus, he was crafty enough to bounce New York Times columnist Brett Stevens off of Twitter. So listen up, comrades. Dave Karp, hello and ixnay. I think we might as well start with the Trump rally in Tulsa and how the, this kind of gobbling up of tickets by online groups with no intention of attending this thing felt a little like a strategy ripped from the pages of Saul Alinsky's classic Rules for Radicals, 
What what did you see in that? Um, so it was really cool. Um, now, one, <laughs> this is technical because I'm a professor. Tactic rather than a strategy, and I think that's important, right? Because this is a one-off moment that is designed for maximal pain to, by taking advantage of the weaknesses of your opponent. And what made this so great, you know, this wasn't shutting people out of the rally. The rally was empty not because right. of, you know, people on TikTok uh, making reservations. It was empty because not a lot of Trump supporters showed up. Um, but 6,000 people showing up at that rally, though, can seem empty or can seem like a reasonable-sized audience in an era of coronavirus. And the reason it looked so small is because Brad Parscale, Donald Trump's campaign manager, and Donald Trump both looked at those big fake numbers and howled to the roof and told everyone, this is going to be the biggest thing in history. Look <laughs> at our huge fake numbers. <laughs> and when that was happening, when Parscale started tweeting about it, I actually responded to that tweet in the moment saying, I would bet three to one that somebody on Parscale's team is fake inflating these numbers. There's no way that they're real. Um, and I thought at the time that they were fake inflating the numbers because that's a good way to buy themselves a quick media cycle of, hey, look at how popular Donald Trump is now that he's getting back out there. Uh, and it's also a way to make Trump himself happy when his poll numbers suck right now. So I figured that this was the Trump campaign team fake inflating the numbers. And it's actually even better than that, that this is people on TikTok saying, we would like to mess with Donald Trump, so we're going to register with false data. That gives the Trump team awful data, like noisy data that they can't do anything with. But what it also does, because the Trump campaign team likes to brag a lot, but also makes tons of just basic errors, is they looked at those numbers and said, oh, we're going to not only say that this is going to be a huge rally, but we're going to build like an, an outdoor seating arena and do extra speeches <laughs> for the massive crowds that can't get into the stadium, all of which then sets up these spectacular visuals of just empty, empty crowds. Because, no, it turns out in the era of coronavirus, you're not getting a million people in Tulsa to show up for your rally. So what made this so great in the Alinsky sense was Alinsky tells people that tactics ought to be fun. They ought to be based in your power and, and your authenticity and designed to take your opponent out of their comfort zone. Um, they ought to be fun. But in particular, a good tactic is one that messes with your opponent and takes advantage of their weaknesses. This tactic wouldn't have mattered at all if they had looked at these numbers and said, those are no noisy numbers. Let's take a hard look at them and make sure that we weed out all the crap. But since what Brad Parscale in the moment wanted to do was win a news cycle and make Donald happy, he made way too much of it. And that turned it into this powerful moment that we saw. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so funny. I think all of us thought a million, you got to give me a break. A million people are not coming to that thing. So then when it turned out that only 6,000 came, it just seemed more fun to rub it in for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and the reason why it's fun to rub it in is because they themselves had made such a big deal of it. Of course. Yeah, of course. Well, it's the typical braggart and he, their whole, the whole Trump thing is about bragging. And then to see the braggart taken down is such just desserts. It's crazy. Right. Uh, as you mentioned, I mean, what, what I love about Alinsky is that he's big in the humor. Mm -hmm. And while there's humor clearly in this TikTok Tulsa strategy, what's the kind of big butt as far as using that kind of tactic for a digital call to action? Um, I mean, there's, there's a couple limitations. One is, this is something that probably only works once. 
I would be surprised if doing this a second time has anywhere near the same results because Parscale and team have got to learn from it. Otherwise, Parscale is going to get fired quick. So since this only ends up really being powerful, only really mattering because of the ways that the opponent reacted, Alinsky liked to say the action is in the reaction. Right. Um, it, it probably only works once in that one sense. And also in general, and I, I teach Alinsky in, in my grad classes, and when we get to the points about humor, what I often have to caution them is humor works when your opponent can be shamed. A lot of the attempts that I see at using humor against Trump and Trump supporters, you know, like if you try to use humor in a campaign against Lindsey Graham, it can often fall flat because Lindsey Graham is shameless. Right. You try to use it against Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz is shameless. And it worked here because Donald Trump and his team rely so much on this rhetoric of dominance that they went and Trump trumpeted about how dominant they were, and then they looked like fools, and that actually hurt. But finding ways to make it actually hurt by showing how empty their dominance is, I think that's the key that you want to find a way to repeat. If you're just aiming for humor, then you can run into the problem of, in Alinsky's day when he's writing about how you ridicule somebody and they will you'll really get a reaction, that was true at that time because there were, I think, elites who had more shame than the shameless elites that we have today. Yeah, I mean, the, the way that Donald Trump can avoid shame is really, it's masterful, kind of, or psychotic. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Now's the time of the show where we talk about sponsors. Almost every podcast has a moment where they ask supporters for donations, sometimes via a subscription service like Patreon. But you know, we're not just a podcast, we're a super pack. So, well, maybe just play it. That's a little something we like to call backmasking for dollars. Now you'll never be able to tell, but it's a fundraising message in reverse designed to subliminally encourage whoever hears it to send money to Ixnay. Can you hear it one more time? Now I know what you're thinking. Subconscious messages? What the f hell? I saw HBO's Watchmen. But we're only using rock and roll style backmasking as a way to raise money. We're not Satanists after all. The beauty of this scheme is that we can play the message from time to time, and you won't even be bothered to notice that we're begging, well, maybe more like persuading you to give us money. I think you'll agree that as a fundraising strategy, that's pretty cool. Less intrusive and even less demanding of your conscious yet receptive mind. So just relax and let us ixnay your troubles away while you donate early and often, even if you don't know why. Well, let's talk about analytic activism a little bit. You wrote a book called Analytic Activism, and you described that analytic activism is something different from digital activism. It's more about mining the data only with large advocacy groups, kind of like Avaz or Change.org, Move.org. I have to assume that the RNC and the Trump campaign and maybe pro-Trump PACs like America First Action are also able to use these tools. Is there a way that we, these little guys, should be able to grasp and co-op what it is Trump supporters want most by studying what the Trump campaign does? Potentially. So to be clear, analytic activism is a, is a subset of digital activism. And okay. the reason why it's usually focused on the large groups is because what you're doing is using data and analytics as a form of listening to help you identify right what tactics and strategies are working best, what's getting the best response rates. And that book came out in 2016, it came out December 2016. So it went to press in May back when I really wasn't 
imagining that we would be it would be published at the beginning of the Trump era. Um, and it reads a little different today for that reason, I think. Um, but a lot of what I'm talking about in that book with case examples from you know 2013, 2014, 2015 are things like identifying what are the messages that resonate most with a supporter base? What are the things that are going to get people to show up to marches, to sign a petition, to donate, uh, to go from a simple action to a larger action? And you do that again by uh, with large numbers, uh, experimenting, like running small A-B tests to find out, okay, we've got two good messages here, two different campaign topics here. What's the thing that resonates most? We can just go and try it to random subsets and observe and use statistics to figure out which one is in fact more popular. Um, what small groups, what I suggest in the book, small groups can do, since they don't have the numbers to run those sorts of tests on a day-by-day or week-by-week basis, uh, is they can still often draft off what the big guys are doing. So you can watch what they're doing and say, okay, if they're moving in this surprising direction and we have confidence that that's because they've got data, then we can try to move in that direction too. Or thinking the other way, they're moving in that direction. That leaves a space to try something new that a small group could do that a big group maybe couldn't do. Um, but the other thing I want to, I think we should always keep in mind there, the book is also a warning that the things that get the most clicks aren't necessarily the things that are most powerful. You want to be gotcha. very clear about what is your theory of change? What, you know, how are you trying to build power? Um, and I think that's a, a warning with the, the Trump campaign. One of the points that I often make when people are asking about this data juggernaut that Trump has or about how well Trump did on Facebook in 2016, like, Trump did one thing incredibly well on Facebook in 2016, and that's raise a ton of money. He figured out that they could advertise on, on Facebook and make more money than they were spending. That hadn't been true before 2016. They're the campaign that figured it out. They raised a ton of money that way. Um, so far from what I've seen in 2020, they continue to be really good at using Facebook to identify people who haven't bought a MAGA hat yet, but might want to buy a MAGA hat. And that's great for building a campaign war chest. That's not a thing that you necessarily want to duplicate if you're trying to do something like change hearts and minds or build a deep uh, committed supporter base uh, or challenge fascists on the streets. Um, so I, I would caution against looking at what Trump and the right are doing and just saying, well, they have all the data and they must be testing this stuff really well. Uh, so we'll just go do what they're doing. Because right. hey, I'm not sure that they're actually testing it all that well. Um, I mean, Parscale just demonstrated that while he likes to talk about how they built a Death Star here, uh, I'm quoting a tweet here, somebody else's tweet here, but uh, the thing about a Death Star is that it can be taken down by a, a bunch of teenagers, it turns out. Um, it's got like one pretty obvious weakness, I guess. Um, so <laughs> the, the thing to keep in mind there is that even to the extent that they've got a big data operation, that data operation is mostly about getting Trump partisans to spend money on Trump gear and shout even louder to fellow Trump partisans. I wonder if you think patience has any virtue in the media landscape today. I think about, for when, when I was a kid, I had this blacklight poster and it was these two bored vultures. And on the, on the poster, it said, patience my ass, I wanna kill something. And as a preteen, I thought that was super cool. I wanted to have the word ass in my wall. But for years and years, I had it in my room and people would ask, I don't get it, what does it mean? And I had to learn that the patience, how it, what it meant to the vultures sitting around waiting for something to eat. And I'm just curious if there's any research showing that the patience necessary to organize people, or as Alinsky put it, building a bridge to help people cross from their own experience 
to a new way stands a snowball's chance in hell of being more effective than outrage. Again, it, it comes back to what kind of change you're trying to make in the world. If you want to generate large numbers tomorrow, you're going to go with the outrage. Um, if you want to bend the arc of history towards justice, that's going to require patience and organizing. It's also going to require outrage, honest outrage. Um, but I think a lot about you know, when we look at activist campaigns, even in normal times, um, there's always this sort of floating question of what are we measuring their success by? And if we're measuring it solely by like how much news coverage did you get, then quick outrage is always going to be the thing that wins the day. Um, if you're measuring it by like major transformative legislation passed, uh, if you're measuring it by like long-term cultural change, you know, I, th I think about like, for instance, Black Lives Matter dating back to 2015. There are so many things that Black Lives Matter has done within the culture that have been genuine successes and, and really matters. And also, the long-term goal of Black Lives Matter, building a, a more anti-racist society, like what we actually want is not just police officers getting arrested when they shoot an unarmed black kid, but we actually want juries that will convict that police officer. And that's gonna require patience. That's gonna require long-term organizing. And Black Lives Matter leaders get that. That's the reason why they combine outrage with organizing, with patience. But if we only were doing that sort of fast twitch, like let's in the moment yell a lot and hope that leads to awareness building, you'd get a bunch of momentary awareness, but you wouldn't accomplish the culture change that's eventually going to get racist white juries to hold a racist cap accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect point. Yeah. I mean, that's, it just made me think of that poster out of the blue the other day that that Twitter is so much like retweeting fire or a joke you see or, you know, trolling someone or something like that, where the long term planning is not sexy, but it does have a chance anyway. <clears throat> well, you need both of them, right? You need the Twitter moments providing the substrate that you then build organization out of. If you don't build organization, then that ends up being a tremendous loss because you want to turn those moments into monumental organ organization. You, you need the outrage, you need the moment, you need the viral moments, but then you gotta do something over time with that capacity. And that still requires the sort of like long slog of organizing. We'll get you out here on this one. It might be considered a tricky question because of the speed of pop culture, but what's your thought on the television show, Mr. Robot, and should our audience stream it or skip it? Thing I want your audience to know, Season one, everyone knows is incredible, and then it kind of slows down a little bit. Season four is such a deep, rewarding payoff. It's so well done that if you find yourself like partway through season two or season three being like, I'm not sure if I'm committed to it. Like, it's one of those shows that you can't have it in the background. You have to give it your attention, but it rewards that attention. I think it's great. And particularly in terms of like living through a dystopia of like politics, money, and tech, it's one of those shows for our times. Goodbye, Dave Carp. Okay, listen up, everybody. We're doing a membership drive, but it's not one of those where we interrupt the classical music for 10 or 15 minutes of blah, blah, blah. I'm here with an exclusive offer to make you a card-carrying member of Ixnet, a group that's subversive, but not yet outlawed by the Trump administration. 
And because this is our initial membership offer, for as little as $10, we'll send you a spiffy Ixname membership card, good for impressing fellow travelers, and caging discounts anywhere independent thinkers can be coerced. Our core political belief that chaos is just as important as order offers a flexibility of thinking unapproached by rival political action committees or even most secret societies. So while we might not be the masters of Atlantis, with your help, we could become the largest anti-Trump membership organization in America. So what are you waiting for? Go to ixnapac.org membership and sign up to get the voter ID card your parents warned you about. Last week, we had an Ixnapac poll. The question was, when wearing a mask in public and you see someone you find sexually attractive, should you exhale and inflate the mask or inhale and collapse the mask? And the survey says, exhale and inflate the mask when you see someone you find sexually attractive. You see, there is news you can use. And now, to the phone. The opinions expressed on the Ixnay hotline do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this podcast or our sponsors. Hola, Ixnay. Que onda? Claudia here with a scene report from Texas. Looks like as of today polling, Biden and Trump are almost in a dead heat. We're tight in Texas, people. Looks like we've got a blue wave miracle in the works. Texas hasn't gone for Democrats in Jimmy Carter. Thinks about that. So we aim to ixnay Donald Trump by making sure every single Texan is registered and ready to vote in November. It's time to flip the Lone Star State blue, y'all. Hasta luego. Ixnay. Stay safe. To leave your own scene report, ring up the ixnay hotline at 512 766 8279. And if you're feeling like you missed the TikTok Trump bandwagon, a reminder that Ixname membership is still the best deal in the land of card-carrying Trump resistance. And it's the following and sharing of Ixname Pack on Twitter and on the Facebook and on Instagram that keeps membership entry fees ridiculously low. So thanks again for everything. And if you're out on your bike tonight, don't forget The nature of your oppression is the aesthetic of our anger. Ixnay.